All right, welcome everyone on the intranets. And uh, I know it's your favorite time of day again, O2 and you, uh, our captivating half hour hour of riveting policy discussions, politics and environmental uh, issues focused on the state of Utah. Uh, I'm your host, David Garbett, and I'm very excited about our guest today. I'm always excited about our guests, but I'm particularly excited about our guest, uh, Isabella Arrigo, who is going to talk to us about some pretty um, impactful research that she is the lead author of. Isabella, welcome to O2 and You. Thank you. Uh, great having you on. And I have to, I just have to note this up front. Very excited to have a fellow BYU grad, current BYU student <laughs> on the, uh, the podcast today. You know, that BYU, it's, uh, it's producing riveting work on the <laughs> environmental front. Uh, but welcome. We're going to talk about today uh, this paper that you are the lead author of, Isabella, um, that was just recently published in the journal Atmosphere titled Human Health and Economic Costs of Air Pollution in Utah, an Expert Assessment. But before we get to that, tell us a little bit about you. Um, you're, you're in school, tell us what you're studying, how you got to that, and how you got to this, the point of doing this paper. Yeah, so I'm Isabella. Um, I was born and raised just north of the city of Chicago um, in a town called Long Grove. It's really small. It's about 30, 40 minutes northwest of the city. Um, and I went out to Utah uh, as an undergraduate to study environmental science and international development at BYU. And I just graduated last year. And then I was planning on taking a gap year, going somewhere else, but I ended up staying um, because of this professor I've been working for for a couple of years now. He got a grant and was able to hire me as a grad student. So I am staying, sticking around for two more years uh, to complete a master's degree, also in environmental science. Um, and I guess how I got to environmental science, I am really, really passionate about the earth, about um, the cross section between environmental issues and human health issues and kind of just, um, population issues in general as well, specifically with vulnerable populations. Um, I'm really interested in how um, environmental pollution and degradation and increased um, extreme weather events are impacting our vulnerable populations more than the rest of us. And um, on a community and on a global level, I'm just really interested in, in that in general. Um, and I think that I've always really loved the environment, but I it really started when I took AP Environmental Science as a senior in high school. That's when I kind of, I really learned about all that's happening to our planet and all that we need and can do to, to help her out to save our planet and to save our space here on this planet. Um, and then I guess coming to this study, how it started, uh, two years ago, I started working for my advisor, Dr. Ben Abbott at BYU. He was a new uh, professor in our environmental science department, and um, I was looking for a way to get more involved in the major and to get more hands-on experience with research. And I started working for him, and I was talking to him about 
um, air quality in general, because I'm sure many of all of you Utahns, anybody living in valleys will note during the winters, the inversions. And I had been noticing them for several years and I was talking to him about them because I was so um, curious. I just didn't understand why in a place that I grew up, just north of the city of Chicago, it can take me anywhere between 30 minutes to five hours to get downtown if I drive because of the dense population and the amount of traffic that there almost consistently is on the expressways going downtown. And you never see that kind of, it's rare that you see that kind of traffic in Utah. I mean, I don't think I ever have. And um, I was so intrigued by how a smaller population with less traffic and seemingly less emissions than what is happening in the city of Chicago could have such visible air pollution, so much of it. And so I was talking to Ben about it and um, we then started talking about, well, what is this impact that, okay, maybe during the normal amount of year, we have less pollution, but what is the impact of it being trapped down in the valleys with us during these inversions? And then that kind of turned into, well, what is the impact of air pollution in general for us as a state of Utah? And um, we started talking about this and we started doing a lot of research into it, reading the literature and talking with our legislators, trying to figure out where the stem of this issue was and how we could um, improve it. And in this initial literature search and literature review, we found that there were no specific to Utah numbers. So we can find the number of people that die from air pollution on a global level, on a national level, we can find that number for how much money air pollution is costing us on a global and national level, but there's no disaggregated data to tell us this is what's happening in Utah. There's no Utah specific studies to tell us that. And um, we saw that there wasn't a lot going on in terms of public or political action in the state of Utah to reduce our air pollution. And so we are hoping that in finding these numbers and presenting them to our legislators and to the general public that we would see action and change. But in finding that there weren't any, we set out to kind of fill that information gap and fill those holes so that we could then present these numbers to our state legislators and to the general public so that hopefully we would see um, actions being taken to make a difference. Uh, so the rest of us look out, see that terrible air, cough a little bit and go on and you decide to, to dig in and, and do this study. Can you talk a little bit about what you found? What are the, what are the numbers? Yeah, so I guess the main things that we always highlight from this study are that the average Utah loses about two years off their life. Um, and then it's costing the state about $1.9 billion a year. So each year it's costing us $1.9 billion. And as a whole, each person in our state is losing about two years off their life just because of air pollution. Uh, can you say that number one more time? I mean, that's a really, really big number. Yeah, so the health, the two years, um, it's a lot that <laughs> two full years that people are dying two years early because of that. But then if we're breaking these numbers down even a little bit more, 
we're seeing that about 75% of the population is losing at least one year. So the majority of us are losing at least one year and then um, almost a quarter. So 23% of the population are losing five or more years off of their lifespan. So it ranges and um, from, you know, some people are losing more than others, but everybody is losing something. And it's because of air pollution. It's because of what we are putting into our atmosphere. Yeah, I think that's an interesting, one of the interesting things I took away from your research is that sometimes these numbers and these averages can be driven by a unique subset of the population that has such drastic effects that it pulls an average over. But, and, and we have that, we have this, this subset of the population, like you said, I think it was a quarter mm -hmm. that are probably losing. Um, did you say it was four, five years or five greater? Five years or more. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then even those who you might say are in the healthier or less uh, susceptible subset are losing a substantial chunk uh, of their expected life because of our air pollution. And so yeah. across the board, you're seeing these impacts. Yeah. Um, Oh, sorry. That's just something really important to know. I think that I think generally when we talk about air pollution, we talk about the sensitive groups, the immunocompromised, the elderly, the young, um, those with asthma, you know, the pre-existing conditions. Those are the people, you know, when you see the yellow days out on the screen, oh, that's only healthy for people who already have pre-existing conditions or that's only unhealthy for people who are older or younger that's fine for me to be outside. But in reality, it's not. It, air pollution affects everybody. And though those people may be a little bit more sensitive to the air pollution, it's still impacting those who are, you know, in their 20s, 30s, 40s, really healthy, active. Uh, it doesn't really matter. It targets everyone. I uh, wrote down a term or a specific sentence that was in your paper that I thought was really interesting. Um, I'm just going to quote it. You said that air pollution is one of the largest barriers to human flourishing. And I mean, in a nutshell, that's your paper really drives that point home. Not only is there this impact in human life, but impact to our economy. Uh, and that term flourishing, I think, is such a great catch-all of how it's really holding us back here in the state. Um, if we can, I'd like to, I, I wanted to jump into some of the things. I want to tease out a little bit more on this because, you know, without losing sight that you did something that was really groundbreaking here. For the first time, we have some good estimates uh, that are Utah-specific of the, the toll to human life and the cost to our economy. And really, there's nothing else out there. Um, very important. But I, you know, some of the things that I took away as we, we think about your, we place your paper in context of what's happening in Utah, either action or inaction, mostly inaction, to try and address these problems. You know, I think it was telling that it took somebody from outside of the state to come in and say, what are you people doing? Like, how have you grown accustomed to this dysfunction and this misery, which is really what it is. And, um, you know, sometimes here we joke around about how 
numbers like this, or we haven't had these numbers, but the potential numbers um, as applied to Utah from, you know, extrapolated from uh, averages that are looking at a global scale tell that there's a big cost. That kind of information doesn't seem to persuade policymakers, but the thing that oftentimes, if, if you're catching them, that they really seem to be put off by is if we bring in out-of-state visitors who are thinking about locating businesses here and they say, ooh, you know, I don't want to move my employees here because the air looks dirty. That's the worst thing. You know, that's terrible. Never mind my own health or the health of my kids, but we can't have other people thinking that we're dirty. Um, why is that? Um, I think more than the outsider's perception on Utah is the money that outside business and tourism bring into Utah. I mean, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I know that the majority of Utah's tourism industry comes from our outdoor um, activities and from all the great stuff that the outdoors in Utah can provide, you know, hiking, climbing, mountain biking, then we hit the winter skiing, snowboarding, snowmobiling. Um, and I mean, in our economic uh, estimates that about $1.9 billion is what air pollution is costing us in Utah, 0.9 billion of that comes from, so almost half of that estimate comes from um, indirect costs and the indirect costs come from uh, reduced tourism, decreased mm. growth because businesses aren't bringing stuff in, businesses aren't moving um, their headquarters or their um, offices to Utah. Um, and a lot of that is because people fly in and they fly into this haze. Um, one time a professor said to me, that when you drive down from Park City, come back after a great day of skiing and you drive down the canyon into Salt Lake or down into Utah County. And um, he said it was like um, driving down into the depths of hell because you see the haze that you drive down through. Mm -hmm. And as people come from out of state and they fly into this haze, it's the same thing. They're like flying down into the depths of hell. Um, and pe people from out of state notice it. I noticed it and they see this dense air pollution in the air and they're like, whoa, what is going on? I don't want to bring my business here. I don't want to, or they hear about the health impacts. They hear about the quantity of red days that we have and they don't want to come. And so th that alone costs us a lot of money. And um, I think that that is the biggest thing that our politicians notice when people aren't moving to the state because of the air pollution. It's not necessarily, oh, it's dirty, but oh, they're costing, this is costing us money. So that's what's like raising the red flag. Gotcha. It wouldn't be an episode of O2 and You if I didn't bring up our epistolem epistemological crisis here in uh, America generally and in politics specifically. And I wanna talk about this is something that you actually touched on in your paper. Uh, you know, part of my feeling in politics is that facts only get you so far, and typically it's not very far, that if we wanted to persuade Utahns to do something about air quality, maybe what we need is a reality TV show like The Bachelor, but instead of The Bachelor picking his bachelorettes, 
he loses his favorite contestant if the air quality index goes above a certain number. That would make people really sad. Then we'd have to do something about air quality. That wasn't your approach. Your approach was, yes, uh, there is skepticism about these numbers. There's a lack of information. But if we bring together a broad coalition of experts, then we're presenting policymakers and the public essentially like with a grab bag of experts and they can choose who it is that they want to hear from. And I thought an interesting thing you talked about in your paper was how uh, legislators would ask you, well, who's on the paper? You know, who, who participated in this? Um, which was an interesting way to try and address, uh, like you said, the skepticism. Um, you find that made a difference when you could cite authors that were from the legislator's favorite institution that then they started to listen to you? Um, I don't know if the institute, well, I think that it probably did play a role, the institution, but I can mm -hmm. definitely say that, um, that having a lot of people on the paper and some of them well-known air quality experts or medical experts, medical doctors, um, it does help. And I mean, I think that part of it, I mean, I can't blame politicians for all of it because there's such a huge amount of uh, media and information out in the world that how do you make a best decision based on all of this media coming in when it you have a certain amount of time to do it. You can't ingest all of this media at once. And so you go to the sources that you already know you can trust. Maybe it's because you know the reporter does good work or because this expert is well-known, is has high credentials, you know, whatever it might be. Um, but I think it's hard, it is hard. It's hard for me to find real information unless I'm reading it from a peer-reviewed scientific paper, you know, from the media. There's just so much out there. And our legislators don't have training in reading scientific papers. They're hard enough for me to understand. And this is what I study every day, all day, you know? So I think that one of the purposes of the expert assessment is to bring together credible peer-reviewed information from subject matter experts. But another great aspect of, about it is that having so many different experts from different fields and from different areas who are known by different groups of people makes it more accessible to our legislators and to our media sources so that it can get out there and the general public and our legislators can get timely and um, credible information. And so I think it's helpful for us to get our information out there, but it's also helpful for them because they see a name that they recognize and they already know they can trust and they say, okay, I'll look at this and I'll base decisions off of it. One thing you noted in your paper, um, that uh, you, you have, I think a paragraph in your paper where you talk about the time that you spent at the Capitol and it's a little bit like shock of watching how I think you, as you described it, there were certain special interests that seemed to have very close relationships to legislators. Can you just, can you summarize that for us and tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I, you're right, I was shocked. I get, I, um, as somebody who has studied 
science. I've tried to work my way into, you know, I also studied international development as an undergraduate and I've worked my way into policy groups and uh, classes, but I haven't had a lot of experience like with real world interactions in our government. And, but I've always been really interested in scientific communication. How can we kind of break, bridge this gap between science and policy or science and the public or science and media, whatever it is, so that what we're doing can get out to people so that it has a purpose and it can matter. Um, and when we were, when I first started interacting with people in the Capitol, I was so shocked. I was so shocked to see these conflicts of interest and to see just how close our refineries and our developers in Utah were working, you know, those CEOs and head honchos at those companies are working with our legislators and are funding our legislators and are writing our legislation, are writing <laughs> bills. That um, was really shocking to me. <laughs> I think we'll just let that point stand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what do you, so you made some recommendations in your paper about steps that could be taken to address air quality. Um, do you want to tick off some of those that you think would be most impactful? Yeah, so um, this expert assessment, I guess just to give kind of a little bit of an explanation, an expert assessment, how we got all this information that spanned across three topics, policy, economy, and human health, was an expert assessment we write this survey and we send it to subject matter experts so that instead of having to design and fund and execute our a new study to get these numbers, we there's so much information already out there, so many studies that have already been done. Uh, so what we're able to do is survey subject matter experts. And so we surveyed subject matter experts in policy, in environmental legislation, in uh, economics and in human health. So medical doctors, public health experts, all of that. Um, and in doing that, we were able to, um, in doing that, we were able to get information from all these different groups and kind of synthesize it and combine all the information that's out there from these experts to get timely and a cost-effective credible study out here. And so our policy experts gave us some really great recommendations as well as our other experts, they were able to look at, okay, where is the majority of the pollution coming from? So how do we make the littlest amount of change that will be the most effective? And something that we found is that about, I think 42%, I think that was the number, about 42% of our uh, pollution in Utah is coming from the roads. So public, from personal transportation, trucks, trains, all those things. And um, so a big thing would be for people to get out there and to carpool and to take public transportation, ride your bikes, walk when you can. Um, I know it's hard. People are scared with COVID to take public transportation. People aren't carpooling, but I guess during COVID, people aren't going as many places as they normally are. So in normal times, people can hop on the bus or on the train instead of driving over to Salt Lake City or they can um, ride their bikes places. And I think that is a really big thing, making our cities more public transportation friendly, more bike friendly, uh, improving our planning and our infrastructure. And then another place that we could see pretty immediate improvement is updating our building codes. So mm. updating those codes, 
making our buildings more energy efficient and um in just those two things we'll see from our building codes are not updated building codes are very inefficient buildings and mm -hmm. from the roads we're seeing about almost 70 percent of our air pollution is coming from those two things and so reducing those will have a significant impact um and then i guess the last thing that we recommend uh, from our experts as well as just from our own experience in trying to get the word about this study and about these impacts out there is um, to just show your opinion, to contact your legislators, to talk mm. to your friends about this, to get the word out. Because something that we saw in surveys that are taken by the state each year about people's concerns in Utah is that air pollution almost constantly every year makes at least a top 10 list, but usually is found in the top three that people really do care. But what we're not seeing is that reflected in people's actions and in the uh, way our legislators vote. And so if air pollution is something you care about, call your legislators, send them an email, go to their office when COVID isn't an issue. Um, they're really responsive. And that's something that I've seen is that I, every year that I've been working on this study, put together an executive brief and I send it to them. And I, every year, almost always have about 30 phone conversations, 10 to 20 in-person meetings, so many emails that I couldn't even count. Um, but they, they're they here to represent us. And so if it's something that we care about, then they should be voting in a way that represents that. Uh, wholeheartedly agree. I've talked to many people and said that if they could get nine of their neighbors, so 10 of them total, to go to their legislator and say, we really care about air quality, and particularly if they could do that when their legislator is running for election or re-election, they would be one of the most significant interests to step forward in that election, uh, their local state legislators. Doesn't take a lot of people, but to keep that drumbeat going because it's not there right now. Particularly, it's not there in elections, and it just happens that our elections tend to be during some of the better air quality periods of the of the year. So yeah. not quite as you know on the front of the mind. Um, what's next for you and and this paper? Um, this getting the word out there. It's published, so we're kind of moving on from there, but. Um, to just keep in contact this little group well i guess not so little of 24 experts that we have 23 experts sorry that we have um has been a really great collaborative group that we send information to each other we talk about these issues together we try to get the word out through the different individuals um institutions we've been working hopefully uh to create some legislation for either this upcoming legislative session or the following one um and we're just kind of hoping to raise awareness about what people can do to reduce their air pollution but also how they can communicate with their representatives so that we can see differences being made and actions being taken okay well Isabella, thank you so much for your time for coming on the show today. And uh, again, hats off to you. Really impressive what you've done. Uh, already lead author on this uh, groundbreaking study. Just don't know what it's like for the, the other half of us that have never been a lead author on a scientific <laughs> journal. So thank you very much and good luck. Thank you.